How are we doing this morning? Can I just grab the pulpit, please? Where are they? I don't even know where they ended up. I can't even see it. Haven't the band been awesome? Yeah? I am, I am so going to miss not having two worship sessions on a Sunday morning. I might just have to turn up to practice, and that'll be my first one. And Honestly, I have loved the last two weeks where we've been able to um, worship twice. It's been awesome. Um, so welcome. Nice to see you all. Um, we have, uh, this service is also being live streamed, so that's our first day of live streaming, so we'll see how that looks later on. Um, just want to give a quick hello to Craig's mum and dad. They are here with us today. So mum um, and dad, you want to wave? So you want to find out some stuff about Craig, feel free to talk to them later. So that's really awesome. And as you can see, Craig is here, so he's obviously feeling better, which is really cool. Um, yeah, so, okay, so this is... Um, week four. So it's the last one of our home improvement series. And I really hope that um, over the last three weeks that it has either encouraged you or um, it has given you some talking points in your home or it has, uh, you know, just opened up a door so you can have some communication. Um, feel free, of course, to check out Podbean or um, Spotify or iTunes if you missed any of those. So I titled today's message Prodigals um, because I really wanted to talk about what happens when our children are doing things that we wish that they weren't, weren't doing? You know, and this is a thing that we as parents face quite often. And I was thinking about how we have, and you see them, like it's been a while since my kids were babies, right? But you see new parents with these babies. And they're going on about how gorgeous and how perfect their baby is. And they're just gushing about how, you know, she's gorgeous and he's beautiful and they're so perfect and they're just so wonderful. Um, and you kind of have this whole big gushing thing going on. And then they bring their little baby to you, right? And then they expect you to go on about how perfect and how gorgeous they are. And to be honest, on a whole, most babies are like that. But you've got to admit, there are those one or two babies, and you're just like, oh, something kind of look a bit like E.T., kind of cross with a, you know, a pug. No, is that just me? <laughs> okay. To be fair, I am not the gushy one, and uh, Craig is the gushy one. Like, if you want to, he will just mouth all over babies. And, and I, yeah, I, did, I generally don't kind of go there, but, um, you know, that's fine. It is what it is. But we have parents, and even as parents with my own children, I had those moments of how perfect they were. And aren't they just amazing? And aren't they just all these wonderful things? And then you get... To, to the point where you have to understand and you have to remember that no matter how perfect you may think they are, they are actually sinful little beings. They, like us, are born with a sin nature. That's, that's the reality. No matter how innocent you may think they are, they're actually not. Did you know that a, you do not actually have to teach a child to lie? That is not something that a child is actually taught. It is something they know how to do all by themselves because we have a sinful nature. Do you know that children learn to lie by the time they're three? Do you know that? Three years old, and your child's going to look you in the face and lie. Admittedly, they're not going to be very good at it, but that is what happens. So they are sinful beings just like we are. It says in Romans 3, um, verse 10 to 11, As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands and none who seeks after God. So it's very clear. They have a sin nature. We have a sin nature. They are not perfect. They may be beautiful, but they are not perfect. They are sinful. And in reality, none of us have ever 
taken that little baby and looked at the little baby and gone, how cute and how good and how amazing you are, and realized that one day they're going to have their whole entire body pierced all over the place, right? Not once when you were holding your child would that thought have crossed your mind. I remember quite distinctly because it was quite a focus point for me with Madison and Seth when they were little and, and looking them and holding them and thinking about how perfect they were and thinking to myself and, and out loud to God, what do you have in store? What is the gift that you have that is Seth's? What destiny do you have in place for Madison? And thinking about all of that sort of stuff, at no stage did I ever sit there holding Seth when he was young, thinking about how perfect he was, saying to him, one day I'm going to have to drop you off at rehab. At no stage, holding Madison, did I ever say to her, one day you're going to be an unwed teenage mother. We don't think like that, do we, about our babies, about how perfect they are when we're looking at them. We don't stop to consider that this child is one day will grow up and become addicted to drugs or addicted to alcohol, that they're going to be bulimic, suicidal, that they're going to grow up and become very violent. At no stage at all do we have these thoughts about our children, right? Did you ever? I, I certainly didn't. And what happens is we have these good intentions and we think to ourselves, if I do my absolute best, if I raise them to have good morals and good values and to value people, and if I you know, do all the right things and I bring them to church, then because I have all these great and wonderful intentions, that they will actually become these great and wonderful people that we dream and hope and believe that we'll, they will be. But the, rea the reality is, that that doesn't always happen. Quite often, that does not happen. That's not what we end up with. I think about a story in the Bible I think embodies this the most, and that's of Samson. So here's Samson. He was one of half a dozen people who were born with the touch of God. He was one of three divinely announced births. So this kid is pretty special. He was one of only two people in all of Scripture where it's recorded that he was called of God before he was born. Not only that, when he was born, he was the strongest person alive at that time. Not because he took steroids, all purely natural. This is how he was, he was um, called to be. This is all before the kid is actually born. And not only that, he had these amazing parents. His parents raised him to follow the strict rules of the Nazarite. So a Nazarite vow, which is what he was living under and what his parents had taken before he was born was that he couldn't touch anything um, dead, he couldn't ha eat any unclean food, he couldn't touch anything um, that was made of grapes. So that's no grapes, no drinking wine, no raisins. Sounds pretty sad for this poor little kid. And also, he wasn't able to cut his hair, like that was it. So not only did this kid have lived under this rules that his parents had put in, the mom, before she even conceived him, began that process of living this life. So here you have Samson, and if he's got everything going from the touch of God, everything's all over his life. And if you were going to say that there was one person who was going to fulfill the call of God in his life, follow God and everything he um, had called out for him and for him to do, it's going to be Samson, right? You'd think. Because honestly, he's been set up perfectly. But instead, he rejects every teaching his parents have given him. He reject, rejects the teaching of the church 
his religion at the time. He breaks every single Nazarite vow more than once. And not only that, to make it worse, he develops a lust problem for women, which he fell into over and over and over and over again. Completely blessed by God, completely raised exactly right, completely brought up to do exactly the right things, and he completely screws it up. So today, I want to talk about the perspective of a parent when things don't go the way that we want. When your kids go and live outside the parameter of what God's standards say, when they go and live outside how we wish, when they are prodigals. And there are many of you who've got prodigals right now. And others of you in here, one day you will have a prodigal. That's just the reality. And some of you are going through seasons of hurt and seasons of pain and seasons of panic and seasons of loneliness and emptiness, and you are hurting. And for some of you, it's not just your children who are prodigals. It could be your spouse. It could be a family member. It could be a friend. But there's something that I want you to know, particularly as a parent. If you are hurting, here is something that may bring just a sense of encouragement to you. And that is this. God understands parental pain. God understands your pain. Isaiah 1 verses 2 to 3 says, Hear, O heavens, and give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner, and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not consider. I have nourished and brought up children, and they have rebelled against me. See, the ox knows who it belongs to, and Israel does not know who it belongs to. They do not consider God at all. So you've got to think about this. Here is God, and he creates Adam and Eve. And you know what? They were perfect. They did not have a sin nature. God created them, and they were perfect. And God so loved them so much that he put them into paradise. So here they are, perfect beings in a perfect relationship with the Father in this perfect place. And God comes to them, and he goes, I just love on you guys so much, and you guys are so amazing. He says to them that I want you to be fruitful and to multiply. I want you to go and subdue the earth, and I want you to, to do all those things. You know, I want you to, you know, you're, you're both naked. Go have kids. Have fun. You're going to have a great time here. Um, enjoy yourselves. But that one tree there, don't touch it. The 4,832 other trees in this garden, you can have those as much as you want. But this one tree, you can't touch that one tree. Unfortunately, we all know the story that for some reason, the 4,832 other trees they weren't interested in, we're just interested in the one we're not supposed to touch. So they rebel against God and they, touch, they, they partake of this tree. And then God comes along and he's heartbroken. And he says to them, okay, this is the consequence of what you've done. He disciplines them. This is correction driven by love. And he says, Adam, you are going to have to work and toil and sweat for everything. No, you want to provide for, you know, food, you want to provide housing, whatever it is that you want, you are now going to have to work your butt off. And then he turns to Eve and he said, because of your part in this whole thing, uh, you are going to have to... Um, you know, submit to Adam all the time, and not only that, but when you're on childbirth, it's going to suck. That's it. And God had to, as a parent, bring discipline. 
He had to have correction, but it was driven by love. And so God understands parental pain. They rejected him. They rebelled against him. It goes on. If you keep reading the Bible, you come to Judges. Judges, I think, is a crazy book because I kind of see a lot of similarities in our world today than what was happening in Judges. And you have in Judges the whole nation of Israel, who are the people of God, who are the children of God, and they go through this cycle all the time of we're following Jesus, uh, following God, we're going to rebel. Then along comes the consequence because God is a loving father. He's allowing them to face the consequence of their bad decisions. And then they repent. And then we're following God. And then we're going to rebel. And then the whole cycle just keeps going. So God is having to constantly bring in this correction to them, constantly bring in this whole thing. God understands rejection as a parent and he understands your pain. And then he thinks to himself, it's not working. So God then comes along, and when you get King Solomon, God says, okay, I want to take a different track. I'm not going to let them face the consequence. What I'm going to do is I'm just going to bless them and bless them and bless them and bless them. Because then they're going to know that I love them, and then they're going to know that they are loved, and they're going to serve me, and they're going to follow me. And you know what? That still wasn't good enough, and they still rejected God. So God understands your parental pain. So what do we do when our child runs from God's standards and from our standards? You know, we're talking about prodigals. And for those of you who have a prodigal child, you know the pain that you're in right now. Others of you have friends who are prodigals. I have a friend who I love dearly who is away from God, and they are damaging their lives, and it's painful to watch. But others of you have a spouse who is away from God. You have family members who are away from God. These are all the prodigals that we have in our life. So what do we do? What do we do? One thing, though, that I do want to say before we get into, into all of that is that you need to this morning, this is not casting blame on anybody. This is not finger-pointing at anybody. This is the reality of the world that we live in, that we have prodigals, and they are related to us, and we love on them, and we never stop loving on them. So when I turn to uh, Luke chapter 15, verse 11, which is the story of the prodigal son, it says, Then he said, A certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. So he divided them his livelihood, and not many days after, the younger son gathered all together, journeyed to a far country, and there wasted his possessions with prodigal living. But when he had spent all, there arose a severe famine in the land, and he began to be in want. Then he went and joined himself to a citizen of that country, and he sent him into his fields to feed swine, and he would gladly have filled his stomach with the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything." But then he came to himself and he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough to spare, and I perish of hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But when he was still a great way off, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and fell on his neck and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring out the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet, and bring the fatted calf here, kill it, and let us eat and be merry. For, this is my, for my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found, and they began to be merry. 
So he has these two sons. And one of them decides, that's it, I'm, I'm not doing this anymore. I'm not doing the church thing. I'm not doing the living at home thing. I'm not doing the following your rules thing. And he says, give me what is mine. Give me my inheritance that I'm going to get when you die, and I'm going to go and do my own thing. And he traveled to a distant country. Now, it may be that your prodigal hasn't traveled to a distant country. It may be that your prodigal has actually just spiritually traveled somewhere else and engaging in other things. It may be that morally they have distanced themselves from you, but that is what they do. You see, there are three common ingredients of a runaway because a prodigal is just a person who is running away from Jesus. So what, the first one, if you're taking notes, is this. Prodigals become increasingly self-centered. They focus more on, well, this is what I want to do. This is what I'm going to do. This is my truth. This is what feels right for me. So I am going to do this. I don't care about what you're doing. I don't care about what you think. It's all about me, and I will do what I will do. They become increasingly self-centered. The second thing is that prodigals think they know all the answers. And as a parent, this is a really tough season for you to be in. Because what happens is your 15-year-old comes to you, and what they're saying to you is that you don't know anything. I'm not going to listen to you anymore. And they actually literally reject any advice you give. Nothing you say is good enough. Nothing you say is worthwhile for them to listen to. The sad thing about this is you're watching this child who you love, who has very limited life experience, thinks they know it all, and they will not listen to you. So you know that it's always going to end in pain. You know that the road they're taking is going to be a mess. And, you've, and they tell you you're stupid. They tell you you don't know. It's a painful season for parents. The third thing is that prodigals demand immediate gratification. The, the son says to his father, give me my share now. He didn't want to wait for his dad to die. He wanted it right now. And that's what you get. They say those sort of things all the time. I want to do this. I want to go here. I want to have a party. I want to be in charge of myself. I want, I want, I want. There's a really kind of a, a funny joke that... Um, I kind of think that kind of talks a little bit about this. And you've got this 16-year-old boy, and he wants a car. So he comes to his father, and he's like, Dad, I want a car. I want a car. And his father says, who does not like the fact that his son has long hair, he says to his son, I tell you what, I will buy you the car if you cut your hair. And so the son, thinking he's very clever and very smart, says to his father, well, you know Jesus who you like so much? He had long hair. And the son says, yes, but Jesus walked everywhere. See, with prodigals, it becomes all about them. They are increasingly self-centered. They think they know all the answers, and they demand immediate gratification. In verse 14, it talks about how the, the son actually got to the stage where he had spent up all the money. He had lived large. He had done all the partying, all the girls and the boys and the booze and the drugs, everything like that. He went through that whole thing, and he gets to the point where he hits rock bottom. And as a parent or a spouse, or just watching a family member, this is one of the hardest things that we do. We watch them literally destroy their lives, and there's not a damn thing you can do about it. And you watch them just go down this path, and you think to yourself, where did I go wrong? What did I do wrong? How, how could I have stopped this from happening? And you begin to question yourself, and you question yourself. It starts to become things like, 
you know, maybe I should have punished them more. Maybe I should have smacked them more. Maybe I should have put them in a boot camp. Maybe I should have sent them to a military school. Or I should go, oh, maybe I was way too hard on them. Maybe I, you know, shouldn't have done that or I shouldn't have done this. Maybe we should have gone to more church. Maybe we should have gone to less church. And you know what? Oh, you're just questioning everything and it becomes awful cycle that you're in. And then you realize it was actually the cat. You should never got the cat. Told you guys last week, cat's are demonic. Should never got one. If you're a parent of a prodigal child, if you hear nothing else that I say today, you need to hear this. It is not your fault. It is not your fault. Could you have done something better? Yeah. Could you have done something less? Yeah. We are not perfect. You are never going to be a perfect parent. But this, this is not your fault. And one of the things that I absolutely hate is watching these parents beat themselves up so much, pour all the guilt upon themselves that they should have done more, they could have done more, when in actual fact, all they're doing is beating the faith out of themselves because you don't have the faith to keep, keep praying for your child because all you can think about is how you should have maybe done something a bit better. This is not your fault. God will, cannot and will not circumvent free will. They made their own decisions. They will make their own decisions. They will continue to make their own decisions. Do not beat yourself up until there's no more faith left in you. So if you've got a prodigal son or a daughter or a friend or a spouse or family members, there are three things that I want us to look at about how do we reach out to them? How do we, how do we navigate this? The first one is, if you're taking notes, and we do this every single time, we start with unwavering prayer. Unwavering prayer. Colossians 1, 9 to 10. For this reason, we also, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding, that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. So what do we do? We do not stop praying. We do not stop praying. Why? We pray that their life will come into submission with the Lord. We pray that they would work to be pleasing him every single way. You know what's really sad is I, I hear a lot of parents talk about, you know, well, we're going to try counseling. Oh, we're going to try grounding him. We've already tried doing, um, you know, this thing or that thing. We'll put this punishment in place and that punishment in place. And then they go, and we've got nothing else left to do, so we figure we might as well pray. That's insulting to God, our very first port of call, our very first line of defense, no matter what situation we're facing, is that we pray first. We never stop praying. We can hope that God, and you know what? This is not a Sunday school nice type of prayer. It's not a polite type of prayer. This is an on your face with tears, with everything within you, crying out to God. God, I know you can do this. I don't see how it's going to be possible. It doesn't look like it's going to work right now, but I still believe I need you, God, to go after him. That's the kind of prayer. We need to pray specifically. Pray that they have the right friends. In Proverbs 1, verses 10 to 15, Pray that they have the right friends. You pray out those bad friends who are not helping them, and you pray in those good friends. You pray in good, godly people who are on fire for Jesus, and you pray out those other people. I don't care how nice they are. They are not good for your child. You pray them out. You pray um, 
that they will get caught when they are guilty. This is hard as a parent to do and, and for your spouse. But you pray that when they are caught, that they, that they get caught when they are guilty. Psalm 119 verse 71. And pray that God will do whatever it takes. Some of us pray all these cotton wool prayers over our children. But all we're doing is stopping them from hitting rock bottom. And some of them have to hit rock bottom. They have to get to the point where they have nothing left but Jesus you got to be brave. It's scary to pray like that. It's scary to do that. But you have to. If you want them back in the kingdom of God, you want them in right standing with Jesus, you're going to have to start praying some damn scary prayers. The second thing that we have to have is unending patience. Galatians 6, 9, Let us not grow weary while doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not lose heart. In verse 20, it says, While the sun was still a long way off, the father saw him. You know what that tells me? The father never once wrote him off. Tell me that the father didn't say enough. Your, your behavior is so bad that I'm done with you. I'm writing you out of the will. It also tells me that he probably stood every single day at the edge of his property and waited for him. Is today the day? He's coming today. Is he going to come today? And when he didn't show up, he was back out there because today's going to be the day. Today's going to be the day. Do you know what you actually have to do? You literally have to pray and pray and pray and pray. And then you wait and you wait and you wait and you wait. And when you're sick to death of waiting and you're sick to death of praying and it doesn't look like anything's changing, you keep waiting and you keep praying. Because what else are you going to do? And then when and if the day comes that they come home, we give unconditional love. See, one of the most touching stories in all of Scripture is the prodigal son story. And in verse 20, his father saw him and was filled with compassion. So he ran to his son and he threw his arms around him and he kissed him. You know what? The prodigal son didn't deserve that. But that's what he got. And then the father goes crazy. He's like, grab Bessie the cow, slaughter her, we're having steak, we're going to have a party, call all the neighbors, call all the family together, we're going to have a crazy big celebration. I want you guys to grab my robe and I want you to put it on him so that the filth of his body is no longer visible, but he is whole and he is clean. And you're going to give him my ring and we're just going to have this amazing day. Because you know what? My son was blind, but now he sees. He was lost, but now he is found. He was dead, but now he is alive. And the father just went crazy. Unconditional love. And you know, I assume, if you've been in church long enough, that the moral of this story is that we are the prodigals. That we are the ones who know everything. We are the ones who seek immediate gratification. And the moment we step towards God, He's the Father who runs after us, who throws himself on us, who covers us in his robes of righteousness, who loves on us. There are those of you today who are away from God, and I want you to hear what he says. He says in Isaiah 30, verse 18, But the Lord still waits for you to come to him so he can show you his love and compassion. For the Lord is a faithful God. But the Lord waits for you to come to him so he can show you his love and compassion. Love and compassion. 